0: Welcome back to another episode of the Podcast. I'm Owen, and I'm your host. In this episode, I sit down with Dan Morin, who's a writer for Macworld, host of multiple well-known podcasts such as Clockwork, and author of the Galactic Cold War sci-fi book series. In this episode, we discuss everything from how he grew his podcasts to how he became head writer at Macworld. If any of this sounds interesting to you, remember to subscribe and leave a review so you never miss podcasts and so I can keep growing this podcast. Let's get in the episode. So to start off just uh start with like who you are and uh what you
1: do sure uh, my name is dan Morn. i am an author and a uh, tech journalist and a podcaster uh, i'm the author of the galactic cold war series a series of sci-fi spy novels i also uh, do a number of podcasts including some tech podcasts clockwise over at relay fm the rebound which is an independent tech podcast Uh, And I'm a frequent podcaster over at The Incomparable, which is a big podcasting network full of pop culture shows, as well as a tech journalist at Six Colors and a columnist at Macworld. And somehow I still have no time after any of that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you do juggle a lot of things. I want to start with podcasting. How did you get into the format of podcasting?
1: I think the first time I started to do podcasts was way back in 2006 or so. I was on a uh, tech-centric blog called MacUser, which at the time was owned by Macworld. Um, and I sort started, started out blogging there. And while Macworld had a podcast, MacUser didn't have its own podcast. So I sort of enlisted some of my fellow uh, bloggers there to sort of start doing a show, which I would edit in GarageBand. And then I briefly sort of uh, ended up doing some segments here and there on the Macworld podcast, which was pretty well established at that point. And then a friend and I actually launched a uh, a podcast, sort of a comedy podcast that the two of us did, which we did for like, you know, 10 episodes or something before (laughs) real life got in the way. Uh, And yeah, that was kind of my first foray into it. I mean, podcasting was really new at that point because, you know, I think really in the early 2000s, when the iPod got really popular is when it kind of started, but I kind of started in at the very beginning, and I think that probably helped. And it's a lot harder nowadays, I think, in some ways to get your foot in the door.
0: Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of a lot of podcasts out there, mm-hmm. a lot of ones that are inactive as well. True. So you have a bunch of different podcasts. How did you like get your foot in the door with all of these podcasts? And then you also have some um, as part of networks, like you said, Relay FM, and then the mm-hmm. Incomparables. How has that been working with those podcast networks well
1: it's been great in both of those cases i ended up being one of the the very early people to start out with that and, and it came about via people i knew so the incomparable which started in 2010 uh is uh run by my my friend jason snell who was my boss at the time actually he was the editor-in-chief of macworld uh i worked for him and we became friendly sort of outside that and we had a bunch of other friends online who were just we have these email conversations like yeah, we should talk about these like you know books that we like or movies that we like and maybe podcasting would be a way to do that so um i was one on the first incomparable episode back in 2010 um and i've been on a number of episodes since then i mean we're in the 600s or something like that and then that, over time we got more shows that sort of spun off from the main show because people would want to do different things like oh we want to talk just about movies or we want to talk about um you know games and we ended up having a number of various shows that sort of were more specialized um you know we started a DD podcast very, very early on when that was sort of before that got really really popular uh we did some game shows and stuff like that so uh, my experience of that has always been great because all those people are people I know, they're friends, and like as the network has grown and more hosts have come on, it's sort of just become this really great community. Um, and then you know our listeners, obviously, we we've ended up with this very devoted listenership, and so having that and having a membership program more recently has ended up just enhancing the community. Um, Relay FM story kind of similar was founded by uh, a couple of folks that I know, Mike Hurley and Stephen Hackett. Um, and they happened to be starting up the network right around the time that I ended up leaving Macworld. And uh, one of the shows, Clockwise, which I do with my uh, friend Jason Snell at the time, um, we uh, basically had been doing that under the auspices of Macworld, but we were allowed to take the show with us when we both sort of went independent and uh jason was like hey i'm doing this other show with mike and steven on this network um what about what do you think about bringing clockwise the network as well I was like oh that's great i love doing the show so um that was a really great experience in uh 2014 i think and um yeah we've been on the network ever since and it's been a fantastic way to sort of raise the profile of our show as well as just have this again a great community that's been built up around all these shows and all the various um you know uh, not just the shows but the other stuff they do like right now in september as we record this it's national childhood cancer awareness month and they've done this huge campaign for saint jude's for the last four or five years i think and that's just it's cool to have a you know be part of such a big community that can make an impact like that in addition to just producing you know shows
0: right yeah definitely that makes sense yeah i've i've followed a few of the shows and i've heard about that fundraiser which is really good that's really great that they can do that for a lot of people yeah it's impressive work that they've managed to do yeah definitely is joining like a, a podcast network something that's like i don't know beneficial for like newer podcasters like is that something that you would recommend or is that something that you think is better like as you progress and as you get to like build your following
1: I think that both have advantages as a podcaster that's just starting out. I think a network is a great, great way to raise the profile of your show, especially if there's like a lot of other shows on the network that are popular. It doesn't always work. Like it's tough to cross promote stuff. Sometimes people get very focused in on like, I love this show, but I don't want to even on relay FM, which is a great network full of awesome shows. I know there are some super popular shows and it's hard sometimes to attract people from those audiences onto other shows. But I do think if nothing else gives you a resource in terms of other creators that you can talk to and like learn from. Um, that's been a huge asset for me in my in my work on networks is basically be having other people to turn to and being like, you know, hey, this thing isn't working or like, I don't know how to do this. How do you do this? Or how do you get these results that you get? So having like, you know, peers that you can work with and sort of tap their their brains and sort of figure out like how to learn more has always been a great experience. Um, And I think, you know, if you come into it from a more established point of view, I think it's a lot of times easier. I mean, the tough thing about getting into a network when you're sort of starting out is like you're an unknown quantity and it's tough to get people to take a chance on you necessarily. Um, But obviously, if you have a little bit more of a following, there's a great opportunity there for you to say like, oh, hey, I'm I'm coming into this network, but I'm bringing something of my own that maybe you don't have already. Uh, And I think that's that's huge if you can do that. But it's certainly tough when you're just starting out to actually have a following of any kind.
0: Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. It's something that like helps build you up, but it's hard to get as like a smaller person. But sure. it's easier to get when you're more established, but it doesn't like do as much necessarily.
1: Yeah, it can be harder to get a benefit out of that when you already sort of have your your little audience and like it's tough. I mean any finding an audience for any sort of creative work I think is very difficult in podcasts. As you said at the top there's a ton of them out there. So setting yourself apart from the crowd is is definitely still a challenge in this day and age. Yeah, definitely so
0: you're on a bunch of different podcasts how many of them like did you start um how many of them did you start
1: uh let's see uh clockwise i started with jason when we were at macworld uh the rebound i started when i left macworld um and then most of the incomparable shows that i do as like a host are shows that i started um and then i I appear on a lot of shows as panelists too, where I just sort of like a, get to be a a voice in the crowd, which is for me more relaxing because as not having any production responsibilities is always nice. Oh, I just get to sit here and talk to people. that's way easier than editing a show, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. but yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> how did you get the ideas for those? It seems like there's quite a variety from tech to like pop culture and like the nerdy kind of stuff. How did you find those ideas?
1: yeah, I think some of them you know a lot of them grow out of things that i like just like to do you know a lot of the shows that are more um casual like i think of shows like the rebound as a tech show but it's honestly it's like two friends who are also big into apple as i am and just having an opportunity to sort of chat and like have that particular voice that we have it was very irreverent compared to a lot of the stuff i think that was on at the time um and so that was an idea for me, like the, the main driving force there was like, A, these are funny people I know that I, I know very well, we have good rapport, and B, also being a show that was shorter, um, like, you know, that show tends to run maybe 45 minutes, and I know there's a lot of tech shows that go on for like two hours sometimes, it's like, I just don't have time to listen to those as someone who likes tech but likes listening to podcasts, I don't have two hours to listen to a podcast, so the idea of something short appeals to me, and that was also one of the driving forces behind Clockwise when we created that. Um, We wanted something that was uh, very regimented, very, like, not quite scripted, but, like, it had a format, and I thought, like, that was an interesting idea, again, in a world where podcasts often tend to be very freeform, um, to have something that mimicked maybe a little bit more of a TV show or radio show, where it's, like, We have, you know, a time limit. It's never more than 30 minutes. Um, We have sort of a format of the way that the discussion progresses. um, And like everybody brings a topic. And so we have like two guests, two hosts. And we sort of go around and each, everybody gets a chance to talk about the topics that were brought. Um, And I just love the idea of a show that had like a kind of a harder format to it. It feels like something that doesn't get done as much in podcasting. And I feel like it really lends itself to the medium. And it's a great way to get more voices in, and to get um, people to listen in a way that, like, again, if you don't have two hours, you can listen to a show that's 30 minutes. Um, and then a lot of the pop culture stuff is just stuff I'm passionate about and interested in, and it's always fun. I would be talking about this stuff with people even not recording it as a podcast, so <laughs> having that as an outlet is like, well, we might as well record it. Yeah, exactly. You might as well get some uh,
0: some extra benefit right. in addition to the, uh, the fun of talking about it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So do you have any of your shows on YouTube or are they all
1: just audio only? Most of them are audio only. The one show that we tend to do on YouTube is uh, total party kill, which is a D and D podcast. That's at the incomparable. And so we've been, uh, I think we've started later. I think we started out audio only and then eventually moved into doing YouTube streaming on that because again, it was something that seemed to fit a little better into the medium. Like a lot of the podcasts we do, I think our audience is very audio centric. And so having, you know, video for them didn't always appeal. But there are definitely shows that we have done, including some more like game show stuff where I feel like that the video adds an extra dynamic to it. Um, And with D&D, obviously, like, you know, that's that's a pretty popular medium to use for that as well. So uh, I think YouTube ended up being something that was uh, made a lot of sense for that kind of podcast. But I think it really depends on the kind of show you got and the sort of, you know, the, the way that you want to produce it like not a, not everybody's always up to be on video like it's definitely more of a uh you know preparation oh, i gotta be on camera and i gotta sit right and i gotta smile and all that stuff and it's it's definitely requires a whole extra part of your brain to manage all of that as well as talking about stuff and getting really you know into it right yeah definitely
0: that makes a lot of sense um so you're really into like the long form podcasting and then also like writing books and you were a writer at Macworld. So there's a lot of that long-form content, which I, I don't know, I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about how, um, uh, it was like, I forget his name, but he has like a, a creator media company. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a consulting company. And he was talking about how, like the difference between long-form content and short-form and how long-form is like much better for building a community. Mm have you ever thought about doing short form or like just how that might affect like some of your podcasts if you like clip them?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know. I I think you're right. that The long form is better for building a community because people get to feel like they know you and there's a certain degree of like really, you know, bringing people in and having them become almost part of the experience and part of the, uh, the, the sort of, not exactly the back and forth, but like, you know, they sort of get drawn into the conversation. I think that's harder to do with a short podcast. I think there's a lot of stuff for short form that appeals because I think like both attention span wise and also just in general, like time wise, people often don't have a lot of time. And so being able to have something that you kind of digest in a small bit, I think has a lot of appeal to it. One of my podcast partners, Lex Friedman, does a show called Your Daily Lex, which is just him like for five minutes and he like does a podcast every day. And it's like, you know, five minutes, you know, you've got, you got five minutes, you can listen to a podcast for five minutes. And I mean, there's definitely something accessible about that, which is really nice. Um, but it, I, unless you're committed to doing it maybe every day, I guess maybe it's harder to draw an audience. And if you're like, well, I got five minutes for you, but it's once a week or something like people forget about it or don't look forward to it as much.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I actually haven't listened to that. I haven't seen too much too much of that kind of podcasting like strictly on podcast platforms i don't know Mm -hmm. if i'm just like not aware of it have you seen that
1: no not a lot of it i don't think it's very common i feel like a lot of podcasts tend to be much in the much longer form like i said you know an hour to two hours or something like that seems to be more common i mean a lot of that probably grows out of like tv and radio shows where you had like scheduling blocks and like everything's an hour long or half an hour long and you know that makes a little more sense than couldn't really run a TV show or a radio show that was five minutes very often, but yeah, right. I also feel like it's kind of hard to get like into a good conversation with someone.
0: Yeah, if that's. I mean, if that's the format of your podcast, I, w- I will say there are short...
1: some. There are some. Uh, I was just thinking uh, the the exception that proves the rule. Always, um, there's a radio show that does um, basically economic news marketplace, which is on a lot of NPR stations, and they have a couple podcasts that are sort of spun off but are also also aired on the radio sometimes that are like 10 minutes so they do like a tech version called marketplace tech and oftentimes it's on the radio at like you know 6:50 in the morning right like sometime right before 10 minutes before the hour um, but you can also get it as a podcast and I think that's it's a clever idea to have like spin-off shows that are like maybe a little more focused and then it's like hey we're gonna really deliver something like one idea or something in like 10 minutes and you know I think they're like planet money is another good NPR show that's spent a lot of time like kind of honing like they used to do all their shows were like 20 minutes long I think and like that's a good way too to to again drawing people in with this idea like you know maybe you don't have two hours but you probably got 20 minutes and you could listen about like one interesting idea or thought or something like that
0: yeah no I really like that idea that's what I do with mine um, so I will record like a full-length episode with someone and then I'll just like take clips that I think are like the most valuable mm-hmm. and there'll just be like two to like five minutes and then just post those individually, so it's like you can kind of go back through and just uh, get the highlights, I guess. Right, right. That's cover. Yeah, but it's definitely it's definitely different. I'm not sure if the whole short form thing how how long that will last and how that'll f- will affect everything. I feel like podcasting is something that's like gonna stay around just because it's 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 more intimate and it's like listening to someone in your ear for Mm -hmm. like an hour plus it's just it's a much different experience
1: yeah and it's it's immersive too in that sense it's something you can do while you're doing something else right like i think short form works very well often in video you look at youtube and you know you can go find a five-minute video on practically anything and like but it requires all your attention right you can't really do that and do something else whereas as somebody who listens to podcasts like i think podcasts are great when i'm like on a walk or doing the dishes or mowing the lawn or something like it's, it's something i can do while i don't have to do something else and it draws me in to like a different experience in a different world
0: yeah definitely i totally agree i always listen to podcasts while i'm working out which is so nice cuz it's like i can feel like double productive <laughs> <laughs> cram it all in at once that's right all right so i want to switch to talking about your books a little bit how did you start writing books
1: Well, I mean, the short answer is I always wanted to, and so I'd always been writing something. Like, even as a kid, I would try to write these stories, and I wrote a lot more short stories, because when you're a kid, that's all you can kind of conceive of, like, being a novel seems impossible to write. That's so long. Um, And I tried during my teenagers a lot to, like, start writing books, and I would always end up crapping out around, like, 20,000 words or something and just not really have planned out where I was going or what I was doing, and I get frustrated um, so I didn't actually finish my first book until I was about twenty-four. Uh, and I was working at a day job that I was getting bored with. And so like I had like spent a lot of my evenings and weekends and stuff working on this book. And then eventually I was like, I remember when I finished it because I was actually at work and I had, it was like a Friday afternoon, I didn't have anything else to do. I'm like, nobody else is watching or here, so I'm just gonna finish. I know how I'm finished. Like I only got like a thousand words left. Um so that was my first book um, and I sent that off to an agent. I did my research and found like agents and stuff who might represent the kind of stuff I was writing, which at that point was science fiction and um, sent it off and got a very uh, impersonal but polite rejection notice. <laughs> um, and was like, oh, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess so, but I'll keep, I'll keep working at it. Uh, and so I kind of went back and forth for a while. I sort of, you know, was sort of always plugging away on something. And then I ended up doing, I was working at the time at doing, like, IT work and web development. And I hated those jobs, so I left them. And uh, when I started switching to writing as, like, a career, I was doing tech writing, and I was writing, you know, about uh, technology, consumer technology and stuff. That sort of absorbed a lot of my day work and a lot of my writing energy. And so it took me a few years of being able to, like... Peel off enough time to work on something that was purely creative rather than stuff for my day job because like sometimes you would write for like all day and you'd be like oh the last thing I want to do when I get home at night is like go back and start writing on something else uh, it's just very exhausting um, but when I was probably in my like late 20s I was like you know I'm to take another crack at like uh, writing I had this other idea that I'd been working on since like college basically I was like oh I've got this sort of world I want to explore and so I started working on that uh, and it took me like I don't know. 3 or 4 years to like sort of finish the the draft of that first book. And then I uh found an agent that I met uh through a conference. Uh and it actually turned out to be one of the agents I had sent my first book to that had rejected it. <laughs> uh and so it was kind of a nice moment to like come back and he actually was like, "Oh yeah, this is pretty good. We can work on this." And it's like it's not quite ready yet, but like He was willing to spend the time and invest the time with me on going back and forth and helping me improve that book to the point where it could be then sent out to publishers. So, you know, this book that I finished, again, in like 2009, uh, we did not sell until I want to say 2015 or so. So, like, it took a long time. It was a big investment. Um, And, you know, it was very uh, a long, arduous process but um, managed to find a publisher for that one. And then sort of since then, I've been putting out a book every year or two. um, And uh, I hope I'll be able to continue doing that, but it's certainly a lot of work.
0: Yeah, definitely. So as you're writing, like in the earliest stages of writing books, did you find it like discouraging that you didn't like, you weren't immediately able to sell them? Or like, how did that, um, I guess, affect your writing?
1: for sure i mean it is i was actually just having a conversation with a friend about this i mean i think the only thing you can control in writing is persistence if you want to make a like sort of a go of the career you know it is tough there is not a lot of opportunity and you know especially if you are a uh, I think a lot of the you know, pers- people of color or a woman or something like that, there are a lot of car- like the deck is sort of stacked against you. But I think the one thing that you can control is just how whether or not you stick with it. Um, and it doesn't guarantee success. Like you could stick with it and you could, you know, bang out books left and right and, and spend a lot of years working on it. And it doesn't guarantee you'll get a publishing deal. And it doesn't guarantee that you'll sell well if you do get a publishing deal. Um, but, you know, like the old. Sports adage is you, 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 you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So you gotta, you gotta sort of put the time in if you're going to get anywhere. But it's certainly discouraging to feel like I invested all my time and energy in producing this thing and it just didn't go anywhere. Um, I, I, these days, it's a, there's a lot more opportunity though, I think, which is nice in terms of the self publishing world and putting out your own stuff. Like just as we've seen with podcasts, which is like, predominantly sort of a self-published industry where people produce their own content and put it out there, um, you can do that with, with the written word as well these days. And people have made very successful livings or just, you know, even like a good following off of producing their own stuff, um, which was a lot harder, you know, 30 years ago. You couldn't do that. You couldn't, you know, the The idea of these sort of stuff that you self-publish had a lot more of a stigma attached to it than it does now. So uh, it is discouraging. But like, uh, again, if you are somebody who, believes in what you're doing and you're very passionate about it i think you can find an audience these days and that's uh it goes a long way to making you feel like the time that you've invested in this is going to pay off in one way or another
0: right yeah no that makes a lot of sense just keeping with it now when you were starting did you um have any like really strong inspirations for your writing or how did you like kind of i guess come up with those ideas
1: sure yeah i mean Like any writer, I read a lot. Um, I grew up in a household, both my parents were librarians, so like books was part of my DNA. Um, And I think I absorbed a lot of that as I was growing up and reading like incessantly and reading widely all these different genres and and types of books, nonfiction, fiction. Um, I always, it appealed to me the idea of sort of creating a world and so um, I was drawn to a lot of science fiction and fantasy stories where there are just these really um, Ill- interesting worlds that get created and people have really given a lot of thought to. So my, my favorite author of all time is a woman named Lois McMaster-Bujold, who wrote this very expansive science fiction series called The Vorkosigan Saga, which is... Um, it's fabulous. it's all this sort of sort of it bounces around in genres, which is what makes it so fun. Like a lot of them are sort of space adventures like the have, the beginning starts with a character accidentally starting a mercenary fleet and then sort of getting into trouble and it's just they're funny. And they're very lighthearted, but they have these wonderful characters and this fabulous world built around it. And then later installments, there's some that are more like murder mysteries or there's some that are more like almost like straight up comedies. And I love the way that she can move back and forth fluidly through these genres while still maintaining this whole series that is consistently a story about these characters and these characters who age and mature throughout the series. So that was a huge inspiration for me. Um, and I knew I wanted to write something that was like that with like a world with these characters really just sort of grow and evolve. And then I also like sort of harken back to some of the stuff I loved reading when I was younger, um, uh the uh, i grew up in an age between like uh the original star wars movies coming out and the prequels coming out and i'm a huge star wars fan always been a big star wars fan and when i was like in 14 or something they um put out like this new trilogy of star wars books by this uh timothy zahn called the Thrawn trilogy and i was like i devoured these things because i was like super into that i was like my god there's never there's new star wars there's never been new star wars in my lifetime um And I I just, I have such a fond, deep fondness for those books that like, they really just inspired a lot of sort of where I, like the general tone of the stories I want to write again, these fun adventure stories where uh, they're a little bit more lighthearted than there's, you know, fun action and all of that.
0: Yeah. That's really cool. How did you, so like if you're drawing inspiration, how did you like make sure that you're not like taking too much, you know, (laughs) like how did you balance uh... that?
1: it's always a trick. I mean, I think you'll, for me, a lot of what inspires me is not direct. Like, Oh, I love this character. I love this world. Like, even though I started out with that, like the one of the, when I was uh, in high school, a friend and I started a online magazine and this was in, again, mid nineties. So like early days of like the web. And we started an online magazine because we both loved writing science fiction and fantasy. And like the first thing I had published, um, was basically a, a story like in the Star Wars universe that I had written. Like, you know, essentially what you would call fanfic nowadays that was not even really a thing at that point. And I think all writers kind of start there. Like, because you see these things you love and you're like, oh, I want to I want to play with those toys, right? I want to get those action figures and like get to bang them against each other. And I think, you know, that's part of the experience of becoming a writer is like l- experimenting with that and sort of starting out by like, all right, all right there's an established universe or established idea. I want to sort of play around with that. And then, As you evolve, you're like, but I want to tell different stories. I want to tell stuff that's more interesting to me. And I think what helped me a lot when it came to coming up with my own ideas is I was always fascinated by these ideas of, like, mashing different genres together. So, like, my series, The Galactic Cold War, is literally, like, a science fiction stuff mashed up with, like, spy thrillers. And so it's, like... Uh, to me, I wrote that because it's like, I didn't see anything that directly did that. It's like, oh, I love these two genres. And I would think they really would work well together, but I haven't seen anybody write books with that particular combination. Um, and so I want to write that story because I'm so excited. It was the story I want to read. Um, and so I took inspiration, a lot of the tone of other stuff, right? Like how it, how it was written or, kind of just the general atmosphere of of it, but not about necessarily like, oh, I love this character. I'm gonna pluck these characters or these plot devices from these different stories. But just like I want a story that conveys the same way I felt when I read those books. That's really cool.
0: That's a good way to think about it. And that makes sure that you're not like taking too much. Yeah like you're still you're still getting it. That's really awesome. Your books look so cool
1: by the way. I've never
0: (laughs) never read them but I was looking on your website, I was like, dang, I need to read these. Yeah. Yeah. They're like no, right a, up my alley. A,
1: a great cover helps and uh, yeah, again, that's my biggest advice to other to writers other than sort of persisting is like, yeah, write the book you want to read. If you're excited about something you're like, Oh man, no one's ever written this book before that, that mixes all these elements that I love from these different things, yeah, you should be the one to write it. <laughs> yeah. The
0: the whole like space sci fi stuff is so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it's just—it's so interesting. It's probably it's Star a, Wars, honestly.
1: Yeah, I mean, all that stuff captures your imagination, right? I mean, again, like I don't know—it's fun to—it's fun to think about what might be or like what's out there. I—I I, I think that's just a very natural human tendency, and it's a reason why, um, even though like you know, I felt like it was always funny growing up, it felt like science fiction and that kind of stuff was, you know, made fun of or like a lot of time looked down upon. But at the same time, all the popular movies that would come out would be science fiction or like have science fictional elements like Star Wars and Star Trek and Harry Potter and Jurassic Park, like all these things are science fiction really at the core. So like clearly people respond to that.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Science fiction is such like a I don't know, it's very universal in that people like it. And it's like Marvel too is all like that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. It's really cool. Absolutely. So going back, you mentioned that you were a writer for Macworld. How did you end
1: up in that position? <laughs> Um, it was interesting, uh, so I mentioned before I, I worked in technology, um, coming out of college, I had an English degree and so I always, you know, kind of wanted to write, but I also knew it was, a, it was a difficult career to get into. Uh, and so I sort of went back to a job I'd had, uh, working in IT and sort of, you know, fixing computers, that kind of stuff. Cause I'd always sort of been a hobby of mine and I was, uh, pretty good at that. And after a few years doing that, I was like, man, I just don't, I don't really want, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And so I remember being at my job and sort of thinking like, all right, I'm going to make a list of like all the things that I would like to do. Uh, And some of them were like totally outlandish. Like, I I have no idea how to do this, but like one of them was like, be a writer for The Daily Show. And I was like, that sounds super cool. I don't know how you would do that, but I'm going to put down the list. And I kind of came up with a few things and one of them was like a lot of them seemed to be like movie and tv related so I was like oh maybe i'll apply to film school and try that and see like if that's something. and i ended up not getting into any of my film schools um but one of the other things i put on there was like i had been reading macworld magazine since i was a teenager uh, and i loved just you know I would, i'd get my issue in the mail and i'd read it cover to cover And I always enjoyed, especially the back page columns, like on the last page of the magazine, there would always be these just very sort of thoughtful, like, what if sort of hypothetical columns, like, oh, let's investigate this one idea. And sometimes they would even be like humorous or whatever. I was like, that's cool. I would love to write one of those someday. And so I emailed um, I noticed the uh, the editor in chief in the in the magazine at the bottom. He said like, "Oh, drop me an email if you have any questions." I was like, "Oh, well, you know, I'll send him an email." And I asked like, "Hey, how do you how do you get started in this business? Like, what would you recommend to somebody who's who's interested?" And he uh, he wrote me back very nicely. He didn't have to, and it took the time. I was like, "Yeah, absolutely." Like, here's a couple places that you might try to like pitch stories to. Essentially, if you have ideas, um, I was like, "This is super cool. Thanks." Like. Um, and I proceeded not to do any of that uh, because I was <laughs> still kind of lazy. Um, and then I decided to like, leave my IT job, not really knowing what I was going to do next. And I traveled for a little bit and was like, yeah, I'm just going to sort of figure out what I want to do. And one of the things I did was at that point, uh, there was still this annual conference, the Macworld Expo, where you would go and Apple would have these announcements and there would be all these booths and like, sort of like a Comic-Con sort of thing, but for, for Apple nerds. And I was like, you know, I always wanted to go. It's in San Francisco. I live in Boston. It's like all the way across. But, you know, hey, I'm traveling around. I'm sort of figuring stuff out. I'll, I'll go out there and, and check it out. And while I was there, I happened to um, see a uh, like a panel recording about um, some Apple topics. And one of the people on it was this guy, Jason Snell, who was the editor of Macworld that I had sent the email to. And I was like, oh, well, I should say hi. And so I went up to him. I was like, oh, I emailed you, you know, like a year ago about like getting started in this whole business and uh, thanks for your response and all that. And by the way, do you have any jobs? <laughs> uh, and he's like, well, no, we're not really hiring right now, but we are starting up this blog and we might be looking for some freelancers. So, you know, shoot me an email and, um, you know, maybe we can we can figure something out. And so I ended up doing that and I submitted some writing samples and I they hired me to start writing to start blogging for them. And I'll tell you, in those days, again, it's 2006, uh, I was getting paid... I think my first, when I signed the contract, it was like $5 for a blog post. (laughs) And I was very lucky uh, when I finished my first sort of pay period, first month or whatever, they're like, you know what? You've been doing a great job. We'll give you $7 a blog post. I was like, woo, $7. Um, So I just sort of like, you know, I'd always been a writer. And so I just would churn through stuff um, basically as fast as I could do, is like produce content. And what ended up happening was I did so much work for them that they started asking me to do some stuff for the magazine. Like, oh, do you want to, like, write this piece that will actually go to the magazine? I was like, oh, absolutely, yes, yes, I do want to do this. I just, I basically said yes to everything. That was sort of my other key. It was like, you're going to offer me an opportunity, I'm going to do it. Um, And so over the next year, year and a half, I ended up sort of working my way up and becoming the co-editor of the blog because some people left, and, like, I ended up sort of taking over their role. And then about a year and a half in, they're like, look, you've been writing so much stuff for us. It's actually just cheaper for us to hire you. (laughs) Uh, So they hired me on uh, as a associate editor. And uh, I was there for a little over seven years. And I sort of worked my way up from associate editor to senior editor. Um, And yeah, that was basically a a great experience for me. It was like my first sort of real career job. And again, I did end up writing a back page column from them uh, for a, a few points. And to me, that was like, Check that off the bucket list because that is something I wanted to do for like 15 years, and I, I got to do it. So that was an awesome, awesome experience, and I really loved my time there.
0: That's awesome. That's such a cool story, how you got into it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> take take like... a shot is, is my lesson from that one. You never know. Yeah, right. Exactly. Are you still writing for them? Yeah, I do a weekly column for them uh, or like three times monthly column for them um, that I've been doing for the last several years which is just sort of an explorer like it's kind of the columns I loved reading which is like let me just think about this idea and like write like 800 words on this and sort of like oh, I'm kind of curious about this and sort of tease out ideas for them so it's great it's a it's a great gig to have I love being able to write columns for them um and it's still one of my favorite places to read that's awesome that's so cool so you said you applied
0: to film school before that did you go to college
1: I did. Yes, uh, I went to Cornell University. Uh, I got a degree in English, um, but I didn't. I ended up not going to any postgraduate stuff because uh, the film school thing didn't really work out, and I didn't really. I love English, but I never wanted to like go to get a master's or a PhD in it. To me, that always seemed just like too much, like the academic side of it. Um, so I kind of dove right into work after that. But yeah, I did. Uh, did spend four years at college.
0: That's cool, Cornell. That's. I am actually thinking about applying there. I'm my transfer, but that's so cool. It's what great did school. You, I recommend it. It really is. <laughs> what did you do, um, like right out of college?
1: Yeah, that was pretty much where I went. And worked in like the tech support and web okay. development. I taught myself to program. A friend and I, way back in the day, a few friends and I were working on a web comic actually, and uh, one of my friends would do all the the programming for it, and then. He ended up like going off and getting a job or something and he couldn't do it. So I was like, well, I guess I'll just teach myself to do this <laughs> because something no one else is going to do it. So I should like take it apart and figure out how it works. And so that ended up being something that, uh, you know, led me into this career. Even though I didn't have a degree in like computer science or anything like that, I ended up working in this tech job at a, a university that was like had this small research program. And they're like, we just need someone to support this office of like 12 people and build websites. And I was like. I can do that. And they're like, yeah. And you seem like you can actually talk to people like a normal person. So that's great. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> that's so funny. That's
0: so random that you just got into something that you taught yourself instead of using the uh, the Cornell yeah. English degree.
1: Well, it's hard to find a place to use an English degree. Like people always make fun of me like, oh, yeah, you know, like, you'll get used to serving fast food or whatever with your English <laughs> degree. And I was like, I guess. I, I really had no idea
0: what I was going to do with it. Yeah, honestly, any degree from Cornell, I feel like, holds some merit in a lot of jobs.
1: <laughs> I hope that I hope it helped, but you know, not to say it doesn't come without its costs too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you you
0: juggle a lot of things. It seems like your um, your tech interests and your your kind of pop culture interest all feed into podcasting, which <laughs> is really awesome. I think podcasting is a really cool. Um, platform for that but how do you how do you juggle all of these different things you have a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of projects that you seem to be working on
1: yeah uh, it's tough um, a lot of it is about managing time um, I one of the things I used to love doing and I don't do really anymore um, because of you know sort of post pandemic was like I used to go to the coffee shop in the morning like that was kind of my like work writing time it was like. I would get up in the morning. I would walk down the coffee shop i It'd spend a couple hours there. I'd sort of, like, be able to, like, disconnect a little bit from uh, what was going on in the world and just sort of work on some writing. Uh, and that was a good way to break up the day because, like, I would physically move locations. Like, if I then need to record a podcast, I would come back home, and then I'd have that. And, like, it was always nice because I can – they use different parts of the brain, and so, like, it let me sort of switch gears. Like, okay, I've been writing and very focused in on this idea for, like, a couple hours – now I'm going to go into a medium where, like, I'm talking to people and I have to be social and, like, it, you let me use a different part of my brain. And so I really always appreciated that. It's, it's one of the things that makes it easy for me to juggle these different tasks is I never get too stuck in doing the same thing. Like, I'm not sitting 9 to 5 doing, like, staring at the computer and only doing one thing. I'm kind of doing all these different projects. And it means, like, I can bounce around and be like, you know, I don't want to – I'm not feeling working on this right now. I can move into this different project and work on that. Um, And then another part of it is just like, honestly, like boring, like calendaring, like putting stuff in my calendar, making sure I carve out time to do all these specific things and having schedules and stuff like that helps a lot in terms of like not just being good about your time, but also like sort of scheduling your brain a little bit to think like, okay, I've got this thing I got to do later today and I got to be sort of in this mode to do it. So I need to like, you know, be able to prepare myself for that. Um, it's a little, a little more challenging right now. I have a, like a, I have a two month old, so that's that's <laughs> throwing a wrench in a lot of like, okay, scheduling's kind of out the window these days. But you do what you can, and you, you know, you just got to get it done.
0: You work around it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So very like specifically here, what is your like your, I guess your organization system? Like, what calendar mm. do you use? Do you use a, uh, do you use
1: Notion at all? I don't. I know of it, and I've tried oh. it in the past. I bounce off a lot of systems, and honestly, I I try to go with the stuff that's super light on the overhead. Like, I don't want to spend too much time fiddling with systems. I don't even, like, file. I don't file my email. Like, I, I, I'm I, really bad about, like, I don't even archive my email. Um, but I, like, I, so I, yeah, I use the basic, like, I use, like, reminders on my Mac and my iPhone and notes on my Mac and my iPhone to just keep track of stuff because it's super easy. It's always on any device that I have. So I always know if I, like, write something in notes, like, I will have it. It will be on my Mac and my iPhone and my iPad and all of that. And I don't have to worry about, like, oh, where did I put that one note that I i wrote um and it's not I, i'm not the best at like structured organization um so i've looked at some tools like notion and other things where like give you a little bit more of like a like a structure to work with and i just always sort of bounce off them i did play around a little bit with um obsidian which is like this wild text editor thing that i like has this, it's almost like building a wiki and i was like that's something that really appeals to me but it also was super fiddly um so, like, yeah, I I stick with a lot of the basics. I do use Fantastical, which is another uh, uh, iOS and Mac app for calendaring because it's got a little more power. But honestly, yeah, a lot of what I do is just sort of with the tools that are, you know, sort of freely available. Because I, And this is, like, one of my other little mantras. Like, I think t- tools are a, can be a trap. Like, a lot of times when people ask about processes and stuff, and they're like, oh, what tools do you use? Like, what apps do you use? And it's like, okay, th- tools are great, but if you spend a lot of time worrying about tools or thinking about tools, you're not doing the work. And it's something that can be like a very tempting distraction. And you think like, well, once I get all my tools set up, like all the amazing creative stuff will just happen. It's like, nope, that's still very hard. (laughs) So um, I, you know, I think about this in particular. One of the tools I use for writing a lot is an app called Scrivener, which is this really uh, great app for, designed for all sorts of writing stuff. But I know people use it to write comics. I know people use it to write novels. I use it for all my novel stuff. Um, It's got a million different bells and whistles in it. And uh, somebody was asking me about it recently. And I said, here's the thing you need to know about Scrivener. I'm convinced that nobody uses more than 10% of the features. And nobody uses the same 10% of the features. (laughs) You can talk to like 100 different writers and be like, oh, I use this and this. And people are like, oh, I've never even tried that feature. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, Because it's super complex. But ultimately, it's about finding the thing that works for you. And that gets out of your way and lets you do the work that you want to do
0: yeah i totally agree with that i think it's so important to start what you're doing and then figure it out as opposed to like getting caught up in the details like you were saying i think a lot of people spend too much time figuring things out and then they end up just
1: like getting burned out on that and then just not yeah. starting the project totally and in, and as important as finishing the project too that's the other thing that's that's the tough part honestly i've started a lot of projects i have not finished yeah Yeah, no, that's super fair. With this this podcast,
0: I have an experience. I just started, um, I don't even know. I used like, I've used like two different hosting platforms Mm -hmm. and I've used like a couple different recording platforms, different things for writing scripts. It's all gone out the window. Yep. (laughs) Like what I started with is nowhere near what I I use now, (laughs) which is kind of funny. It's totally what you were saying. Got to roll with the punches and figure out what works. Exactly. Like when you start, you're not going to know, know what you're doing. You're not going to be good at it either, which is a very no. important thing to realize when you're starting. Definitely true. <laughs> so you're podcasting. You said that you do some producing of it. What is uh, like,
1: what is your scope of that? How much of that are you producing? depends on the show um uh, a lot of my shows i do the editing and that can range like there are some shows that are really just about like hey let's you know slap some intro and outro music on it publish it and that's get it out the door you know make sure everybody sounds good you know within a reasonable link but i'm not going through and doing fine edits i'm not doing removing crosstalk like i'll remove if there's a if there's a problem right? if there's a tech error or something like that or somebody drops out i'll definitely go in and like splice everything together and try to make it sound really nice but you know if it's not going in and removing ums, ahs, pauses, crosstalk, et cetera. It really depends on the audience for the show. There's other shows that I am super fine toothed with and I will take me like a couple hours to edit because I am going through and like lining things up precisely and removing crosstalk and making sure everything flows really nicely and it feels a little bit more like a heavily produced piece. Um, and so, for example, I do a show on the Encouple Network called Inconceivable, which is a game show that I host, I have a scorekeeper, and then I have two panels of three people. So I have eight tracks that I'm working with. It's a lot. Uh, that show takes me a few days to edit usually when I put it out, and I only do it every few months or something like that. Um, and that one I work very hard on because with so many people, it is tricky to sort of make sure you don't have too many people talking over each other, and you, everybody's clear and at the same level. Um, so I spend a lot of time on the production end of that one. Uh, a lot of what I do is editing and less than sort of the engineering part of it, just because that's not my background. I know enough to make people sound sort of like pretty good, but like, it's again, easy place to get into the weeds and it's very technical. Um, So I'm not as good with that end of it, but I know enough to at least make people sound pretty good. Um, And then I'm also the person often on a lot of my podcasts that sort of um, you know, lead host, making people, helping people set up their mics, helping people like make sure everything's configured correctly. I have, you know, a show clockwise where we have two rotating guests every week. So a lot of that falls to me to not only do scheduling, um, and like sort of find booking guests, but also make sure that those people are set up to record and know what they're doing so that we can like get a clean, uh, a clean recording from them. Because a lot, a lot of times these are people who are not necessarily podcasting frequently, like, um so yeah so uh, on some shows i do quite a bit on the production end and then there are some shows where again like i just get to sort of sit back and and hang out and those are definitely less work
0: yeah definitely you just mentioned that uh like the people that don't podcast as frequently that's something i've noticed doing this show getting <laughs> getting podcasters on the podcast is like such a such a life hack it makes it <laughs> so nice yeah
1: <laughs> i yes, will sir. say uh my my tip for that one is my friend anthony johnston who is a podcaster and i'm trying to find he has a site where he like sends people he made this like guide at one point that was uh basically here's how to be a good uh podcast guest and um he used to be a podcast seems like that url may or may not work right now but um It was great because it was like, here, let me just lay out like a super simple way to do podcasting. Because he used to do shows where he would have a lot of guests on it. And he's like, yeah, I got tired of like dealing with that all the time. (laughs) But I think it's out there. You can Google podcast guest guide. And I think it's out there. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to find that. (laughs) So you mentioned
0: how some of your shows, you edit them more heavily. And some you leave a bit more raw and a bit like more just as it was recorded. Mm -hmm. Do you
1: notice a difference in performance? um between those two Hmm. in terms of like how many people listen or response or like the audience performance yeah Yeah. it depends because i think the shows are kind of tuned to their audiences i think like for example a lot of the shows that i leave a little looser are shows where it's like i do a show where we recap tv shows you know it's like so you're doing one a week and you're like covering shows and a lot of times a lot of the value in it is getting it out within a reasonable time frame, because people are like, Oh, I just watched the show. Now I want to listen to a podcast, like breaking it down. Um, and so a lot of that is about sort of getting stuff out more quickly. And I think people are a lot more forgiving about that because there is the understanding like, Oh, well, you know, this is a bunch of people sort of chatting off the cuff and it's really just sort of about responding to something that they just happened. Like it almost feels like a live, live broadcast almost in a certain sense. So I think people are tend to be more forgiving about the audio quality or about like the fine tuning of that kind of show. Uh, than about something that is you know like i said i do a game show that's it feels like it's supposed to be a little more heavily produced and more targeted but i find that the the quality of the audio like editing and everything like that does not matter as much as sort of mm, the the content or the like the genre and like matching up with that like i think a lot of times if people like your show um audio can sort of be a tipping point left or right like i know people who listen to shows that they absolutely love where the audio is terrible like um some of my friends are big fans of this show called The Flop House which is a uh podcast about movies and i think the early on like the the podcast was it was terrible audio quality because they didn't know what they were doing but it was very funny and people enjoyed the show so much they were willing to listen to it even though they're like oh man the audio quality is terrible but it's really good and i love it so you know you can get by sometimes a little bit you can coast a little bit if your show is really good and you got great content you can get away with not having the best audio quality and on the flip side of that you can have great audio quality but if your content sucks nobody's gonna care
0: (laughs) yeah that's totally i totally agree with that it's the same thing that I've noted. Not the same thing, but it's very similar to um, like video and audio. It's like when you have super bad video, mm-hmm. the audio is good. It's like more acceptable than when the audio yes. is bad. And then yes. the video is good. It's the same thing as like the 100%. content. Yeah. Yep. Which is really interesting. It's It's kind of funny how that works, but I mean, it makes total sense. Yep. Yeah. All right. So we're getting to the end of the episode trying to keep it not too long here i have one more question that i like to ask everyone what is one thing that everyone should buy that's under 50 (laughs) dollars
1: oh buy one thing that everyone should buy that's under 50 dollars. i'm looking around at my desk to see if i've got any good ideas on that i will say hmm, under 50 bucks that's tough um I think a good uh, a good mic, if you can find it for a podcaster, a good mic, and there are some good mics that can be had for about fifty bucks. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of any of the ones I would recommend are, but I'm trying to I'm sort of come up with a blank on that one. Um, but I think that's probably one thing I would recommend. Uh, it kind of depends on what you're doing and what you what your like sort of like interest is, but. Um, Man, you totally stump me with this one. I wish I, I wish I had thought about it more. Uh, you can buy my books; they're less than. 50 <laughs> uh, and everyone should buy them. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, I mean, yeah, uh, that's that's one for podcasting. I would say a good pair of headphones for podcasting, and again, that's one place where I definitely think you do not need to spend a lot of money. Like people by I know people who are like, oh you you know you yeah, had this two hundred fifty dollar pair of headphones. Like you don't need two hundred fifty dollar headphones. Your no. your iPhone earphones will work fine, honestly. Any set of headphones using headphones <laughs> podcasting. Rule one you're already in better shape than most people.
0: <laughs> it's so true. I've used uh I use like the uh old like cable it had mm-hmm. like the aux port. I used those yeah. for so long it's and fine. they work perfectly. The yeah. It's <laughs> no problem. Yeah, like it really, it really doesn't matter. But yeah, I like that A microphone and headphones. Those are both good, good ones. And your books, don't forget that. Don't forget those. <laughs> Very important. All right. So, do you wanna, you wanna plug your books or socials, podcasts, anything like that? Sure,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Um. So my Galactic Cold War series, you can find at any bookstore that you shop at. They're on Amazon, or Barnes and Noble, uh, physical bookstores. Uh, I always recommend checking out local bookstores near you. bookshop.org. And IndieBound.org are great resources for finding your local independent bookstores and basically buying books from them. Always support them. Uh, you can find all of the stuff I do at dmoren.com, D-M-O-R-E-N. That covers uh, all my books. I have links to all my podcasts and where I write all my, my tech journalism as well. And you can find me on Twitter at dmoren. Awesome. Well, thanks b- for being on this episode. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to
0: Dan for being on the episode. I thought it was a super valuable conversation. If you have any suggestions for future guests, remember, you can leave them a review, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, or send me an email. Also, remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.